0: Welcome to Cottonmouth Manchester, a podcast brought to you by Cityco, the city centre management company for Manchester and Salford. I'm Vaughan Allen from Cityco and I'm sitting in the cafe of the Manchester Art Gallery. I think this is about the third podcast we've recorded in here but it's not yet open to the public. You will hear a bit of clashing behind and I am having a very nice flat white so there's a little bit of tinkling of spoons going on. Um, I'm here with Alistair Hudson, the relatively new director both here and at the Whitworth Art Gallery. Alistair comes from the rather wonderful uh, Middlesbrough Institute of Modern Art and previously was at Gridesdale Arts as well which we'll talk about and succeeds uh, Maria Bolshaw, of course who moved to the Tate. Uh, Alistair, start sort of at the beginning. A little bit of background about you. What attracted you to The Post? Um, Well, I guess it's the biggest art job in
1: the country outside of Tate, so it's hard to say no. (laughs) That's one thing. Um, But also, I have a rather nerdy interest in the sort of history of 19th century institutions and another version of what art galleries and museums are that has been slightly neglected and forgotten about, which is actually about how they actually have a very central role in shaping society. And I think we've got very accustomed to thinking of museums and art galleries as luxury extras that we go to on a Sunday afternoon when we haven't got anything else to do or to go to a sort of glamorous opening or to, uh, really appreciate the fine arts, things like that. But actually, um, the, the origin of a lot of museums and galleries uh, lies in the sort of educational side of art and in the um, the side of social transformation. And um, both um, institutions here in Manchester have their roots in those very origins. So um, after all these years of talking about you know, the great 19th century moment when people really understood the role that art and creativity would play in society and economics, uh, I had this chance to actually come and work in those institutions and resurrect that idea.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, if you, if you can give us a, a very sort of brief, putted history, what's the, his, the history of the galleries? And many people will know this, particularly with the art gallery, less so, I think, pos- possibly with the Whitworth.
1: Um Yeah, so basically there were... There were, there were um, Essentially, three components uh, to the galleries. So m- let's start with Manchester Art Gallery here, which was initiated in um, 1823 by artists in the city who wanted to essentially uh, create a place to uh, basically to, to to bring art to people. Because if you remember, well, you you won't remember. No, remember. You weren't around in on 1823, were you? No. <laughs> But the, the idea was really was to create a place for art within the city. As, as Manchester was industrialising, um, it was a big, dirty, filthy place. And it was the sort of, uh, you know, the epicentre of capitalism in the world as it was racing forwards. And uh, really, the, the, the artists initially, but then a lot of the big businessmen of the city got involved and said, no, we need an institution. Which promotes arts and sciences in the middle of the city. If we are going to be civilized, rather than just a huge factory with these, you know, churning small children through mills, then we need to bring art and creativity and knowledge into the into the equation. So uh, it was then decided that uh, a, a, an art gallery should be built, or an institution should should be built, and it was originally called the Royal Manchester Institution for the Promotion of uh, Art. Art and science.
0: Get that on a tote bag. Uh,
1: And it had had its royal warrant, and it uh, really began from there without an art collection. It was lectures, it was workshops, they had an art school, they had a school of industrial arts, there were chemistry laboratories in the basement. It was a complete educational system for everybody, for every man, for the working classes, Everybody. And that really was the institute movement that started, well, 1800, that started with George Burbeck. Um, but uh, you know, another version is just down the road from here, the Mechanics Institute, um, which like many institutes became university. So Manchester uh, University, University of Manchester, started out as a Mechanics Institute. And these were these places where basically people got, a, everybody got a comprehensive education of how the world worked and the idea was this would fire Britain forward as a superpower in the world, and it worked. So institutes spread like wildfire across Britain. There were 700 of them in the UK by about 1850. So they really were sort of the engine rooms of uh, Of how you, how you design a society, and if, interestingly the, the, some of the original statements are hilarious they 're great they're perfect they 're like about working up the raw intelligence of the town, about creating the civic imagination, about planning the city
0: was there a little bit in that also of uh, the great and the good of the city feeling themselves competitive with yes. London and with other cities there, there's this feeling of some of the, the industrial cities, certainly during the Victorian era, as competing in the the size of the town halls that they're going to have and who they're going to get in for their town, but also for their art collections as well. A, a, a good world city has to have a decent art collection and has to, has to be able to show off it. that it is more than just factories.
1: Yeah, ex- absolutely. Yeah, um, th- th- and that was the case here. It was about Manchester being a player in the world. And actually, this still happens today. If you look at the Guggenheim Bilbao or Middlesbrough Institute of Modern Art, you know, these new buildings popping up, it's about actually being relevant and a player and having, a, you know... A, a bit of uh, you know a bit a, a bit of uh, power in the world really you know that, that's how that's how they're used they're used by many people in many different ways um, so so yeah the Manchester Art Gallery has its origins there but they even in the time they couldn't really afford the great art of the times so the collection was then built by buying you know the the, the like young whippersnappers of the day which turned out to be the Pre-Raphaelites in the end. Um, But but that really was the origin of the gallery. And next door was the Athenaeum. um, And uh, that was kind of like a gentleman's club version with a lecture theatre and, you know, all the great speakers, the great thinkers of the day. Yeah, exactly, yeah.
0: And and then the Whitworth, what's the history of the Whitworth?
1: So the Whitworth is a little bit later, but the same idea. So this is based upon the idea that art is useful, which is my big thing. Um, And uh, it was created on the back of the wealth of Joseph Whitworth who is one of the great uh, engineer craftsmen of the 19th century, of the Industrial Revolution. So he invented the the standard Whitworth thread on screws and bolts, which made him a lot of money. So it's still in place today. If you go to Screwfix and you buy a BSW screw, it's British standard Whitworth screw gauge. um, He was very good at creating things that were super flat. He worked out how to make things super flat, which in you know Industrial Revolution, is good. if you want to stick two things together, that's really handy. Uh, the Whitworth rifle was his in, um, creation, the uh, weapon of choice in the American Civil War. That made a, made a bit of money as well. Uh, and he... Uh, Sold to
0: both sides, I'm sure.
1: Yes, although I think mostly to the wrong side, <laughs> uh, which is something we might explore uh, in future program. And uh, yeah, he, he handcrafted Charles Babbage's first computer, he was the guy who actually made it and made all the components. And he, he, he was he was sort of the go-to guy if you wanted something designing, inventing, making. Anyway, that made him a lot of money. Um, and his estate was really used to create the Whitworth Institute and Park. And again, the idea of that was to bring art, creativity, design to the workers to inspire them to be entrepreneurial, to be creative, to come up with better products, mostly around the textile industry. You know, this was this was Cottonopolis. So the idea was really to kind of boost the, uh, yeah, the textile trade and Britain, Britain's uh, kind of uh, uh, productivity in the nineteenth century. So that's that's where it, uh, the Whitworth originates from.
0: And and was was he collecting, and were the original collections then his personal collection?
1: There were some. There were various collections that came together. Um, there was formerly there was, there was another house on that site, which uh, was was basically was where the it was institute started in 1889, and then the building you see today, the sort of uh, the red brick large facade, uh, was just a, a turn of the uh, 20th into the 20th century. Yeah.
0: So um, I'm aware, having been in the city for a while, that. Obviously, the, the management of the the two galleries got combined. What five, six years ago? I think it probably was. It may even been a little longer yeah. now. It, it feels fairly recent. Um, so, so for you coming in, how does the how does your sort of your average day, your average work, week work between the two? How do the two galleries work together, and how do you also differentiate them as well?
1: Um, well, it's an interesting question. I mean, at the moment we're um, we've just been in the process of writing a new mission and vision. For both institutions and also because we're part of what's called the Manchester Museum's partnership, which uh, includes the Manchester Museum run by Esme Ward now. Uh, That's like a three-legged... Previous podcast. That's like a three... Yes, (laughs) go go to the link. Uh, That's a sort of three-legged stool uh, in which we are really talking about creating the civic imagination and us having this role within, within the city, a very productive, generative role within the city, also based on education. Um, but the difference really um, between the two institutions under my watch is uh, essentially the Whitworth is part of Manchester University, um, and therefore is really based much more around uh, education, Research and really working with all those um, uh, different departments within the university in very interesting, exciting ways that has huge beneficial outcomes to the to the to the people of the city. Um, and that we do have programs in healthcare, we have programs in science, uh, you know, we've done a lot of work historically with graphene, for example, uh, in the graphene centre, with the NHS, with hospitals, with communities, particularly in our, our neighbouring communities there of Mossside, Fallerfield. Rush Home, Brunswick, all those kinds of places. Um, But also it works internationally as well. So we have these big shows. So it's a very kind of interconnected um, institution, but one that is very firmly rooted in the university as an educational institution. And the Manchester Art Gallery is very council. We're sort of very proudly part of the city council. You know, it's been part of the council since the 1880s and was always designed to be like the civic think tank. You know, it's the big building with the columns where people decide how to make the city work, how to make the city creative. So it's like that sort of, um, like the engine room of the city, if you like, and very much embedded into the thinking and operating systems of, of, of how you run the city.
0: And it may not still be the case, but I know that uh, my good friend, uh, Warren Smith, who is the Lord Lieutenant, uh, who used to be my boss uh, many years ago, he he did used to have tea here pretty well every Saturday with um, some of the great and the good and the great patrons because uh, they were great donors and still are i believe donors donors to the art gallery and, and part of their sort of procession around the city was to make sure that they were patronizing the the, the cafe every week which was which was always fascinating because you probably see the same group of people in those sort of same positions going back 100 i mean i don't know how long the cafe has you know effectively been here but it's sort of 120 140 years doing this having the same discussions um but also being of course very passionate about if they were giving a donation they wanted to make sure that the the people of manchester were benefiting from that and it wasn't just going to be for the great and the good um, I think one of the one of the things I think that's interesting to explore and I'd like to understand from from your point of view is um, having been in the city for ooh, a very long time eighteen years or so um, possibly a bit less the that idea that you said at the beginning of uh, you know, the, the the job in the two galleries being the best job in in uh, in art outside of the Tate I would say that fifteen years ago that probably wasn't the case. Um, But I'd be interested in your view, of how maybe perceptions have changed, certainly there's been a process of opening up both galleries over the the last 10 years at least, if not more. Um, Perceptions of of how it's changed, how it's evolved, uh, where sort of the Manchester gallery scene stands nationally, internationally now.
1: Yeah, I think, um, obviously, it's changed a bit. And actually, actually what I didn't say is that I grew up in Manchester. So I was here until I was was 18. (laughs) So I I knew both galleries very well. Uh, But the city was very different then. And the galleries were very different then. Um, They were fairly quite reserved places, it's fair to say. But obviously, now, the whole culture has changed, the city has changed, and the ambition has changed. And obviously, somewhere like the Whitworth has completely opened up, you know, and with the new uh, extension three years ago, transformed the way the building looks, the way it feels, the way it connects with the neighbours and communities around it. Um, But also, it's changed its position on the national scene. And it was always called the Tate of the North, you know, that's how people refer to it. But now it does really feel like that. It, does, you know, it, it was like a, it was, it was a bit of a, a, you know, a bit of a leap to say it was the Tate of the North. It's fair to say in you know nineteen nineteen eighties. But uh, now
0: we've always been very good at marketing, though. I think. Exactly,
1: exactly. And um, but but now it definitely it definitely has certainly in terms of the uh, the building, its status uh, nationally, it, it it holds that position, um, and the and the Manchester Art Gallery as well. Is of course one of the one of the great collections of art in the country in the world. I mean, you know, just this morning we're signing loan forms for uh, works from our collection to go to to go to Australia, um, and you know, it, it's a very very significant collection. Um, so they have this status, um, but for me, I suppose the challenge now is whilst you have these great buildings. And it's always hard with following someone like Maria, who you know, really put these places on the map, uh, to then say, well, what next? Where do we go from here? And for me, it's really about creating content. Okay, we've got great buildings, we've got great resources, but what do we do with them? How do we make them useful? How do we make them relevant? How do we really position them um, in a way where everybody goes, oh, yes, that's why you need an art gallery? rather than just the people who usually frequent art galleries or in the art world or, you know, follow the scene, say, oh, yes, they're, they're great art galleries. So that's the challenge. And I think it's also fair to say that uh, whilst they are big institutions in the UK, they're not fully international institutions. You know, if you go, we have to have a sort of, an, a, you know, a bit of a, a, a rain check here uh, uh, to a certain extent. And, say, and, you know, if you go to New York and say, oh, yes, I'm from the Whitworth." they might ask where that is. If you go to, uh, you know, Stuttgart or Japan and say I'm from Manchester Art Gallery, they may, they'll know where Manchester is, but usually it's because of the football.
0: <laughs> yeah, they won't necessarily know what the collections are and what the strengths are at that point. Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah so that, that's, that's the job to be done, but I think is one we, we, we can do. But the way to do that is by making the programme and the way we run these institutions internationally significant, And I think the way now to make institutions internationally significant is to make them work really effectively on the ground in their locality. This is the big question now in in art. What's happened in art for, you know, the last hundred years or so is that art has, you know, we know where art has gone. A lot of the things people say about modern art and contemporary art are are kind of true. You know, it's a wonderful thing, very complex thing, uh, the world of art. But, you know, it has been dominated by the market and it has been dominated by small proportions of society uh, who, uh, you know, who get a lot out of it. So I think if we can find a way to reconnect these institutions more and more with the people of the city and to make them really operate in ways that benefits everybody from all all walks of life... Then actually, that that gives you international relevance. People then start to take notice. It was very interesting in Middlesbrough to take a, basically a you know a gallery in the northeast of England where nobody knows, and by turning the thing inside out and creating a new kind of program, a new way of working, you suddenly become everyone in the world wants to know about you and wants to know how you're doing it and why you're doing it. And basically, we can do that and more here.
0: Uh, this is this is something we were exploring with. Uh... Esme in the in the previous podcast uh, how you take a um basically a Victorian collection that has continued to be built uh but how you take it out into the city how you evolve with the populations of the city I think one of the, one of the things that is fascinating here is I mean particularly at the art gallery but Whitworth has, has gone through I actually know Whitworth as well gone through a very deliberate policy of physically opening up um the art gallery as you're Probably were aware of. There's a huge debate about whether the railings should stay and whether the, you know all of this sort of stuff while it, while, it was, while it was while it was while it was evolving. But the big change that has happened is is I think um, both being seen far more as, as social spaces. So you know toddler and baby groups just coming in to use the space a lot more work, particularly with the Whit- Whitworth Learning Team um, around actually how you, how you work with local communities, which is which has been such a huge change over the last ten years. I and mean, how do you build on what's been done? How do you take that even further out into the city? Um, how do you make... I mean, I think people have a... Particularly with the art gallery, people have a sense of this is part of the soul of the city, but might not necessarily come in that often. You know, it's a nice building that they, they would not want to see disappear, uh, but they wouldn't necessarily visit. How, so what's the vision for taking that even further?
1: Well, it's... That was a rambling question, I apologize. No, but I think the, the crux of it is... Actually, it does a lot already. Both, in, both all these institutions do a lot already, and I always say that seventy percent of what a place like this does is not visible. You know, you, what's visible is the exhibitions and the building, but there is enormous amount of work with schools, with young people, with homeless refugees, uh, dementia. Hospitals, you know, we could go on and on. In fact, with the, f- the first week I started, I got the team to map out everything they do beyond exhibitions, and it is this sprawling. It was, a, and it ended up being a drawing uh, a, about six foot by eight foot of this uh, world of stuff that the that the, the gallery does in and through the city and beyond. Um, and one of the jobs is actually to make that visible to make people say, oh, that's what an art gallery does. It's not just about preserving old paintings on the walls, um, but it is actually about education and social change. That's what an institution like this does. And I think if we can change that message and change perceptions and understandings of, of, what, the, of what museums do then we can galvanize even more energy around making this way of working operate in society. And for me, the, the, the big problem is in, in decision-making, in problem-solving and planning how we make the economy work. And, and I mean the economy in the broadest sense, in the traditional fundamental sense, which is about general housekeeping of society. Right? If we can instill creativity into those processes, then you can make some really radical changes in a city structure and in society for people at every level. It's very interesting. I've been working um, actually with an economist at the moment um, about perver- I quite like the idea of the, per- well, the perversity uh, of it, but to do a show about economics, to show actually what creativity does in terms of it basically infecting the way we work in everyday life, you know, in business, in in housing, in education, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. How we can basically make creativity work for a much bigger good. And what was interesting with this economist was he says, yeah, that's what I teach my students. I teach art to my to my students because that, for me, is the is the biggest thing in economics right now. Is basically how do you create basically uh, use storytelling, aesthetics, basically creative processes to transform the mechanics, the plumbing of how you make a society work into one that works for humans. That's what he teaches. And, And for me, that's also what an art gallery or a museum should be doing. We're kind of like an art school for everybody. But it would be an art school for business leaders, an art school for engineers, for computer scientists, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, as well as school kids and, you know, which is, which is retired an ex- people. Excellent
0: slogan. You obviously. Yeah. Um, at the core, though, are the both galleries still collecting, and and what are you collecting? What you what are you looking for? Uh,
1: yeah, I mean, we're still collecting. We we don't have the budgets to buy works of art you know, that places like they this used to market. have. Yeah, yeah. And also because the, 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 the markets have gone exponential. You know, it, it, we, we basically, we can acquire works basically through grants and trusts and donations. That's generally how we acquire works. Um, but we fundraise for acquisitions as well in very particular ways. Um, so, we're yeah, we're still acquiring all sorts of things. And it, the, the range is huge here as well. I mean, the collections span... Uh, fine art, which is painting, sculpture, video installation, films, uh, software programming, all kinds of uh, different aspects of what comes under that rubric of art, but also uh, design. We have design collections, ceramic collections, textile collections, costume collections. You name it. Anything, anything made by human beings. <laughs> Uh, across the across the partnership, we collect, um, but we're also now looking at ways beyond collecting objects as well. I was I was trying to challenge, you know, uh, the sector in a way to say, what about if we collected relationships, or what if we collected ideas? So one thing I'm working on at the moment is uh, the collection of this uh, digital archive called the uh, uh, the archive of Arte Util or Useful Art, basically, which is case studies from around the world of artists or art projects working with people to provide solutions to particular social, political, economic problems. And what's quite interesting is this is kind of like a toolkit. It's like a, a, a textbook of how you might take a problem and find a solution to it. So in a way, whilst it's a digital archive, to have that in our collections is an interesting proposition, but it also means we have a really useful tool there to work with the city and different communities you know, around you know, how we might create a, a, so, a social enterprise in a neighborhood, or how we might you know, green up a, an urban area, or how we might solve a housing problem. And these are all creative solutions. So I, I think more and more we'll be looking at different ways in which we can ha- collect works that have a use, that actually have, a, it's not just getting them because they're nice things to have, the important thing is to get things that we can actually employ in our business of yeah changing the way things work, and that actually is the history of the collections. the collections were, were collect right from the beginning the idea of these collections was for them to be useful and I had this lovely moment because I bang on about usefulness all the time, as you can probably tell, but uh, I was looking looking into the uh, the the, the um, into the archives, and when this building was first. Conceived, there was a there was a competition, and there were in the the end there were four architects who submitted proposals anonymously, and uh, the winner Charles Barry, the famous nineteenth century architect, won the competition. But uh, instead of his name on the cover was the Latin inscription "Nothing beautiful unless useful," and so I think we have the yeah we have the yeah the kind of originating statement there in uh, yeah in how we might go forward.
0: I mean, it slightly preceded you as well, I think. But um, we we had, of course, a huge debate about removal of a particular painting. And um, oh yeah, that happened that, the week before I yeah, started, which was yeah. which was really interesting. I mean, um, and again, that that was part of the conversation um, that we were talking with Esme at Manchester Museum about some of those objects, and obviously, uh, she had a really interesting statement that actually. I think she was challenged by her son and she said, if you, if you removed every object um, that had been brought to the museum through colonialism, how many objects would you, ha- would you have left? Is that something that, that interests you to continue to explore some of the meanings behind and some of the, maybe the way that we would change our perceptions of pictures and how we've got hold of pictures and, and pieces of art? Yeah, totally.
1: I mean, um, it's kind of a big question. And it, what was very interesting about the whole Hylas or Nymphgate, as I, as, as, uh, I called it, uh, was it, rev- it revealed, in a way, a great misunderstanding of what museums and art galleries are. You know, a lot of languages around, you know, basically, this is, this is a place to safeguard, you know, the art of the nation, and you should just leave it on the wall and not touch it. Um, and, of course, that's not how these places work at all. You know, it's they're very subjective, full of decisions. Um, works of art are acquired for very particular reasons. Decisions are made in the first place around what goes up and what doesn't. You know, what what comes down. Um, but essentially, it revealed the lack of knowledge about in public. And you know, it's it's not it's not necessarily anyone's fault. But it revealed to me the disparity between the idea of a museum as a sort of isolation chamber and one that's actually really active and dynamic and, and about education and about, you know, social change and all these things that, you know, I've been talking about. Um, so really, I, I was trying to compare it between, you know, do you want to be a fridge or a cooker? You know, do you want to just keep your food and stop it going off or do you want to make a great meal? And I think, you know, I'd rather have a cooker. I'd rather be in the kitchen than in the cold fridge making, making sure, uh, yeah, the keys didn't go off. Um, so really, we, it's about bringing these places alive. And actually, you know, one of the functions of uh, uh, museums is a sort of storytelling machine. The how, as a society, we write the story of our culture. And of course, who writes that culture is really important. So what we're interested in doing, what this debate is about with Hylas, with decolonization of return of objects to uh, wherever they were nicked from, uh, is really about uh, telling the, a truthful and accurate picture of, of how we came to be where we are now and how we might plan the future. So that's how we use history. You know, History is gone. It's, it's, it, you know, it's, we only ever live in the present but we use this idea the stories history is a bunch of stories we use to think through the present in, t- in terms of acting more ethically in the future that's, 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 the, that's the fundamental part of it so we need to think about our collections in this way And one of the things I want to change here is the way we talk about our collections. So, for example, upstairs now, there's a display of uh, the pre-Raphaelite greats, one of the greatest collections of pre-Raphaelite art, 19th century art, in the world. There is no mention of this being a political movement. The pre-Raphaelite movement was a socially active political movement about societal change. And there is no mention of that. Of course, so they're presented as, oh, you know, these are, you know, these are pictures. They're presented as the formal development of painting in the history of art. This is what the, the tradition of galleries of telling this story. And actually, that's not the right story. That's not actually the role that art has played in society. Art has been this much more dynamic, active way of working. And if you look at the long history of art, art has only ever been art objects for about 200 years before that. It was absolutely about design, architecture, ritual, and social transformation. That's how art has always been used for most of human history.
0: That's it. announcements as we move towards the opening of the gallery in the background. Um, pick out for us a couple of uh, this is this is the, the sort of the token question, but uh, always a fascinating one. Pick out for us a couple of objects, um, maybe from each of the galleries, that you're not necessarily your favourite objects, but the ones that you're most interested in, or tell the most interesting stories for you.
1: Oh, so the Manchester Art i I tell you a good one because I have—I've I've put it on my office wall. <laughs> just so when I started, I had the opportunity to uh, put a put some an, something from the collection on my on my wall just to jolly it up a bit and something I could talk about. Is, when is I that have your presenters. job description? It's part of your, your benefits <laughs> that you're allowed to. Yeah, but you know, it's doing a job. It's doing a job, <laughs> and and so actually, it's a—it's uh, two. I have two paintings on the wall, um, and. I, can't, I, have to, I have to say, I, I can't even remember who the artist is because it was just sort of a jobbing 19th century artist. And it's a pain, two paintings. One is a painting of an ash tree in winter with no leaves on. And one is a painting of an ash tree in summer with leaves on. And it comes from the Thomas Horsfall collection. And the Thomas Horsfall collection is really the contents of the Ancoats Museum which was exactly as I've you know, talked about before, which was the idea... So Horsfall was a disciple of Ruskin, and Ruskin gave up on Manchester. He said it was a filthy place, and it was gone. It sold its soul to capitalism to years ago. <laughs> yeah, and book it off to Sheffield, because he said it was like Rome, because it had seven as hills as around it. Yeah, Absolutely.
0: As a Sheffield boy, yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> and, uh, but, but Horsfall said, no, no, no. John, I can save Manchester. Don't worry, I shall save it through creating a museum. And he built this museum in the center of the worst slum in the world amongst all these mills. And it was a museum which on the ground floor contained basically works of art to show the people of Ancoats what nature looked like and how the world worked. Yep. So these two ash tree paintings were painted to show children how a tree worked and what it looked like because they might never ever know. And on the top floor of the the museum, they had basically a series of model rooms. It was a museum of design to show them how they could live better. And then, alongside this, they ran craft classes, art classes, an education program, which became the Manchester Settlement. And interestingly, that was an inspiration uh, for later the Hull House settlement in Chicago, which became the Chicago Bauhaus. And really, all these collections then had an enormous impact, not only in Manchester, but in the world, in terms of influencing uh, educational thought, city planning, all ki- all kinds of things. Now, of course, the Ancoats Museum is now gone. It was bulldozed, I don't know, end of the 1950s, I think. Um, but the collections are all now uh, in the Manchester Art Gallery. So I, those two paintings of trees on the wall are my sort of touchstone to this amazing moment uh, in, the, in the, the 19th century where Manchester had this most radical
0: museum on the planet. Excellent, that's, that's really good. And um, finally, uh, the marketing bit. What are the big projects coming up for the two galleries?
1: Oh, wow. Well, I could do a long... List. Well, obviously, so we're doing um, three projects at the Manchester International Festival next year that I'm not allowed to talk no, about. you're never
0: allowed to talk about those. Um,
1: so. We're going to be looking at rehanging the collections here at the Manchester Art Gallery. Um, we are doing a show of Leonardo da Vinci here next year. We are um, doing a big show next year called The Crowd which is our nod to Peterloo, the anniversary of Peterloo, um, but which is really about crowdsourcing and how we organise a city um, as, as a, as a, you know, en masse. And this is really also part of the thinking about transforming the Manchester Art Gallery back to its institutional roots, that we might make it this kind of art school for everybody. So it's less about kind of uh, the big blockbuster and more about how we make this thing work holistically for the city as a whole. And then at the Whitworth, we're doing shows around economics, mathematics, in a fun way, uh, a festival in the park, music events, uh, we're doing, what else are we doing? A show with Elizabeth Price, uh, who's a kind of big video artist. We're planning at the moment a big, mega um, exhibition with the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art uh, with this artist called Suzanne Lacy, who's like, she's like the, 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 the godmother of what's called social practice, which is about really about using art uh, for social justice, and she's you know I mean she, she's done lots of projects over the years in and around Manchester, but we're going to do a full retrospective of her work uh, between here and San Francisco uh, in 2020. Um, Yeah, it's endless. There's a lot of stuff happening. Um, But also next year we're going to do, because it's the 200th anniversary of the birth of John Ruskin, we're going to uh, do an exhibition about John Ruskin next year at the Whitworth, which will be sort of radical Ruskin, because what a lot lot of people don't know about Ruskin, although he was an artist, essentially he was also one of the great social reformers. And he gave um, uh, a, a few lectures here in Manchester where he... Often berated the industrialists, but you know he was filling halls of about two thousand people. He was he was Britain's first celebrity, which is kind of hard to understand now because if you read his books, they're fairly impenetrable. You think, why really do people read this stuff? Um, but his the lecture he gave in 1857 was alongside the Great Art Treasures Exhibition, and it was it was uh, it was called on the political economy of art, and it was about the first part. It was in two parts. First part was uh, basically how to how to acquire art ethically for the right reasons, and the second part is how to use art for the right reasons. And interestingly, this book, this, uh, this lecture, became, became eventually the book unto this last written in 1860, which was the foundation text for the Labour Party. It was the book that influenced Gandhi, which was really the book that transformed education in this country. So, a kind of very key moment happened here in Manchester in 1857. So, I'm looking at getting a, an A list actor to come and re perform Ruskin's 1857 lecture.
0: That'll be one that Maxine Peake possibly can't do. But <laughs> but,
1: but my, I'm, going, I'm going to try Michael Fassbender or Benedict Cumberbatch. Yeah, no, I, was I, thinking, yeah. I was
0: thinking when. Dickens is redone, that's always Simon Callow, isn't it? So yeah, it's, yeah, it's yeah, get, yeah. getting the right the But he right was
1: quite person. dashing then. He was in his late 30s, so I think, you know, when he, yeah, actually, and he, before the beard years.
0: Tom yeah. Hardy, maybe, but I don't know about the accent.
1: Okay, I'll get his agent.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you to Alistair. And we'll be talking to other cultural venues. No, well, we'll be talking about other cultural venues uh, in the near future. If you have any comments or ideas for things to cover in the future, talk to us on Twitter at CottonmouthMCR or directly at podcasts at com. Cotmouth Manchester is available on iTunes and an awful lot of other podcast services. Leave a review if you like what you hear.